I would uh, like to request your kind attention for some reflections tonight. I want to dedicate this talk to my dad, who is on my mind today for reasons I don't quite know. But he's 91 and losing his mind. And he will never listen to this. He doesn't do Buddhism and he doesn't do English. And uh, he's... He was never into my Dhamma talks anyway. One thing I've learned from him is map reading. So I would like to do some map reading with you tonight uh, on the theme of Vedana. As you may be aware from reading Bhikkhu Alaya's books, Vedana are important, but if you look at the Satipatthana suttas, um, the the passage on Vedana is comparably short to the (coughs) other passages where, at some length, this descriptions of what kind of animal eating uh, decomposite bodies uh, are listed. So, there seems to be some disproportion to what place Vedana hold in our experience, in, in our endeavor to be happy, in the um, instrumental nature of Vedana when it comes to attention, emotion. Um, so it may be useful to look at this in some more detail. If we zoom out of the Satipatthana teachings as as meditation instructions, and you're probably aware there are many Satipatthana instructions, many more than the Satipatthana Sutta speaks of, uh, it's a theme or a topic that has preoccupied uh, the early Buddhist tradition a lot. And if we zoom out and look at the Satipatthana teaching, it almost appears as if the Satipatthana's are not just a meditative approach, but they're also a map of what we could call experience. In some way you could, in a very reductionist way, come to the conclusion that Satipatthana is one of the models in which the Buddha speaks about experience. Other of those models would be the khandhas, the five aspects of experience, the aggregates, or the ayatanas, the six sense spheres, And in some way, the Satipatthanas can be seen as four broad areas of human experience. What follows is not really the Satipatthana exercises, but just the raw material for the Satipatthanas. The first huge chunk is about somatic experience. It's kaya nupassana, or just kaya as the domain in which we are encouraged to establish mindfulness in which we are encouraged to train um, both connecting with uh, somatic anchoring but also uh, questioning, challenging and reforming some of our perceptions as we have done with the death contemplations or as we have done with the Asuba contemplations. Um, So we have the first big channel would be somatic. The second big channel is about pleasure, the experience of pleasant stuff and unpleasant stuff. 
let's call that technically hedonic, uh, as uh, Bikunaleos already pointed out, the Greek word hedone, pleasure, is a technical term from psychology. And um, as you may be aware, while much of psychology has made it into pop psychology, some crucial bits of psychology unfortunately haven't made it into popular uh, psychology. Uh, hedonic tone is one of those things that generally hasn't made into popular psychology. So bear with us with that technical term because it's crucial that we identify the exact domain of this notion. The third big channel is anything to do with mind state, mind um, in its broadest sense. It's the affective domain, if you want. It's emotion, it's uh, anything to do with purification, anything to do with unification, anything to do with um, desire, with aversion, any volitional uh, concomitants in there belong to the third category, the third big channel of mind. So let's call this the affective domain. And the last, which is maybe the most tricky to list, and that's where my analogy is maybe most weakest, um, has to do with particular processes, things that are particularly useful for liberation and particularly obstructive. In the first case, this would be the bojangas, the awakening factors. In the last case, uh, the nivaranas, the uh, hindrances. And um, in some way, the term Dhamma in plural also doesn't just refer to those categories of Buddhist teaching when it comes to suggestions how to contemplate experience. In many ways, the term Dhamma also means phenomena in there, much broader, so basically contents of mind. So with some freedom, we could say this last channel we could refer to as the cognitive domain. So we have four huge chunks of experience referring to what we would loosely say an event in my experience. So we have a, a first channel, somatic, hedonic, affective, cognitive. Now this is not the exercise, just be clear. This is just the raw material or the basic domain in which attention can be cultivated, in which attention is subject to habitual patterns, and in which it is useful to make skillful choices of how and where to attend. Think of these four channels as TV channels. They're always on broadcast. Right now, you have Vedana. Right now, you have Chitta. Right now, you have somatic experience, hedonic experience. You have cognitive experience. And um, you have affective experience. These things are only nominally, you can only nominally separate them out. If you have an orange, you never just get the color of the orange. You always get the texture, the weight, you know, the firmness. Um, if you smell it, you may smell how it smells. You get its perfume, uh, you get its taste. You never just get, if you get a genuine orange, you always get the lot. Now, it may make a lot of sense to distinguish sometimes uh, the color of oranges or the size of oranges or the weight of oranges. Yeah? It may quite... Uh, make sense to actually make these distinctions. At the same time, you're aware um, an orange is more than just the thing you use to make a distinction for or with. Yeah. Am I clear? Good. Same way, 
uh, you can look at these satipatthanas. Any event in our experience um, manifests in the four domains. Like with TV, all the channels are on broadcast all the time. But obviously, you can tune in to a particular channel by choosing a frequency. That choice is made with the help of uh, clear comprehension and with the help of um, preferably mindfulness, if not at least attention. Attention and mindfulness are not the same, even though uh, cognitive psychologists try to convince us of that. Uh, attention is a crucial part of mindfulness, but it cannot be reduced to attention. So if you think that attention is one of the universal factors called manasikara, Buddhist psychology is crystal clear on this, and sati is, um, let's say, an ennobled form of attention, in fact, of a fluid attention, uh, with a few other aspects thrown in there, an ethical dimension, uh, a dimension of affective tone, yeah, in, preferably in uh, alignment with the Brahma-viharas, um, and a few other things, which will have to be a topic for another evening. Um, so these four channels are on broadcast all the time, and our attention generally tunes into something. If we don't make a conscious choice where this attention goes, then the choice will be made by our habits. As it so happens, our habits seems to favor channel four. That's where the story goes. That's where the narrative is running. That's where my drama is unfolding. That's where the me is taking place. We're all narrators. We all tell stories. We're really keen on making sense of this whole thing. So one way to do that is we try to interpret our experience. And we tell, us, tell ourselves a story about our experience. Usually we do that in fairly personal ways. That feels very personal. I take this world very personal. My life, my body, my success, my failure, my friends, my house. Um, and you know the result of this. You have a few successes here and there, but you, a lot of it feels like failure. A lot of it feels, feels like, you know, you, you're fighting a losing battle. And you can't save it anyway beyond your death. But even if you're privileged and powerful and intelligent and rich, uh, you still feel like a failure. I know enough rich people to know. I've been a monk, and as a monk you meet a lot of rich people sometimes. And it's... Uh, I was struck when going to Thailand and meeting a lot of rich people how inordinately unhappy rich people seemed. I never thought that way. Not having grown up as a rich person, <laughs> I was surprised by this. So, what happens with attention is crucial. What I attend to becomes my experience. That's very, very simple. In Buddhist speak, this would mean uh, what the mind takes up, frequently ponders and is preoccupied with, that in that way his heart will incline. In other words, I become what I keep attending to. What I put into the mind through my attention, this will become my experience. This gives us an inordinate amount of responsibility for our own experience. You know? 
That is one of the empowering statements of Buddhist teaching. Uh, the problem is that much of our attention is uh, what, since about a hundred years, we call involuntary attention. Involuntary attention means it's the type of attention that is called out of us, out of our system. Very easily describable. Anything loud, sharp, sudden, unforeseen, intense is going to call our attention. There are some developmentally psychological reasons for this. Um, adaptability has at one stage been favored by our brains and uh, adaptability necessitates that we can respond quickly to things we could not have premeditated, we could not have planned, we could not have prepared for. Yeah? So anything you know, sudden, sharp, dangerous is, needs to be responded to in ways I could not have premeditated. It's very useful against saber-toothed tigers or against suddenly reverse parking buses or things like that where you said it's very useful function. Unfortunately, involuntary attention, when it's not about life-saving, is not terribly useful as a tool for inquiry. Involuntary attention is kind of continually scanning the horizons for things that happen. Either danger, and when there is no danger present, then involuntary attention seeks to be entertained. It looks for stimuli. So, where could I sit? Where is a nice place? Where is a nice smile? Is there something to eat? How long does it last? Where does the sun shine? Yeah? We continually do this kind of thing. Yeah? And uh, when you go to a meditation retreat in which you have a very low threshold of stimuli, you know, where we, although the kitchen is working hard against us, we're, try, we're trying to, you know, <laughs> simplify that and modulate it down and downplay it. So because we don't get any outside stimuli or many outside stimuli, the mind on the basis of involuntary attention turns inward and seeks memories or fantasies. Yeah? This is not as good as getting the real McCoy, but basically it gives me a very nice afterglow. Yeah? So thinking of the last good pizza I ate doesn't really do the same as eating a pizza, but it gives me enough of a, an echo of this that I may preoccupy my mind, you know, which takes me off the boredom or takes me off a knee pain or takes me off feeling slightly lost and not quite knowing, you know, is this Satipatthana or is this daydreaming right now? <laughs> so the pizza or the memory of a pizza or the fantasy of a pizza or the possibility of trying out a new recipe can actually look quite attractive and preoccupy my involuntary attention. So contemplative traditions across the board have understood that involuntary attention isn't terribly useful. You can't really cultivate it much. It's great for saving lives, but for much of what we want to do with it, introspective, contemplative work, it's pretty useless. In comes voluntary attention, which is hard work. Voluntary attention is possible. In other words, I attend to things by choice, not because attention is quasi-pulled out of me by sensory stimuli, which have to do with survival instincts and very early grooming towards mac maximizing pleasant experiences, minimizing unpleasant experiences. Voluntary attention is hard work. Its increase is rather modest. It takes a lot of sustained effort, both in terms of renouncing things 
and cultivating things. About 130 years ago, uh, William James said uh, that in his fabulous chapter on attention in uh, his book, um, he said that attention consists not just of paying close um, advertence to something, but also by voluntarily removing attention from other things in favor of one thing, privileged. Yeah. So by, if I want to attend to something, I may temporarily need to take my peripheral attention away and dedicate, renounce other possibilities and fully, in an undivided way, dedicate my attention on a focus I have cho chosen. Yeah. This is important. That's where renunciation suddenly becomes a very, very hands-on thing. It's not just something celibate monks and nuns do. Renunciation is something we do all the time. If we want to get any success in any endeavor, we need to be able to renounce things because it's through the act of renunciation we actually learn to focus our and harness our energies. Unless, unless we're willing to do that, you know, it's unlikely we will have much success in anything. If you want to dig deep holes, you need to stop digging holes everywhere. Yeah? You need to focus on one and just kind of persevere on this one. So contemplative traditions have understood that voluntary attention needs to be cultivated. And how to do that means you need to find an appropriate object and you need to be prepared to put up with the unpleasantness of meeting your habitual involuntary habits. Yeah? Does that make sense? So that's why meditation is not easy. You know, I've always felt there's a, such a, a discrepancy between the ease of the instruction and the fickleness of the actual exercise. Much of meditation, as we all know, consists of it not working. Yeah? <laughs> Obviously, we don't tell that people when they come for the first time, but you guys, you, you're ready to handle this now. Much of meditation practice consists of you not being able to do what you've set out to do. Yeah. And in uh, becoming more humble in failing and becoming uh, more skilled in returning uh, more swiftly and staying on it longer, uh, suddenly what seemed impossible becomes more and more possible. And your mind begins to not just be able to do that, but actually to enjoy being able to do that. Yeah. And it becomes malleable. So, one of the tasks is identifying why does my attention stray. And here Vedana comes in in a big way. I'd like to read you something very short, very uh, pertinent. I couldn't put it better. It's from a, uh, it's 35 years old. It's from a bhikkhu called Nyanaponika in his uh, booklet on contemplation of feeling. Feeling is a key factor in human life. Whether people are fully aware of it or not, their lives are chiefly spent in unceasing endeavor to increase their pleasant feelings and to avoid unpleasant feelings. All human ambitions and strivings serve that purpose. 
from the simple joys of a humdrum existence to the power urge of the mighty and the creative joy of the great artist. All what is wanted is to have more and more pleasant feelings because they bring with them emotional satisfaction called happiness. Such happiness may have various levels of coarseness or refinement and may reach great intensity. These emotions on their par part will produce many volitions and their actualizations. For the purpose of satisfy satisfying the pleasure principle, many heroic deeds have been performed and many more unheroic and unscrupulous ones. For providing the means to pleasurable feelings, thousands of industries and services have sprung up with millions of workers. Technology and applied sciences, too, serve to a large extent the growing demands for sense enjoyment and comfort. By providing questionable escape routes, these purveyors of emotional and sensual happiness also try to allay painful feelings like fear and anxiety. Yet feeling by itself in its primary state, is quite neutral when it registers the impact of an object as pleasant, unpleasant or indifferent. Only when emotional or volitional additions are admitted will their desire arise and love, aversion and hate, anxiety, fear and distorting views. But that need not be so. These admixtures are not inseparable parts of the respective feelings. In fact, many of the weaker impressions we receive during the day stop at the mere registering of a very faint and brief feeling without any further emotional reaction. This shows that the stopping of the bare feeling is psychologically possible and that it could also be done intentionally with the help of mindfulness and self-restraint even in cases when the stimulus to convert feelings into emotion is strong. Yeah, this is very crisp. Vedana, as hedonic tone, is in many ways the simplest of the objects in Satipatthana practice. It's usually brief, it's usually discernible, and it's not very complex in its pattern. Technically, it's important that you, and this is where the map comes in, that you learn to identify this um, and distinguish it both from sensation these are somatic qualities. And from emotion, these are all the chitta states. Now, part of the problem starts with the language. We don't have a proper word for Vedana in English. Most translators settle for feeling, and I can't really I can't really be happy with that, to be honest with you, because you know, feeling can be it's such a rubbery term. If you want to talk clearly then feeling is a pretty useless term. Um, I have a feeling we should go. This is probably an intuition. I feel he's wrong. This is a thought. She's playing without feeling, you know. This means she lacks emotional depth in her interpretation. Yeah. These are totally different things, and we all use the term feeling. So, in many ways, um, feeling is a confusing term for the notion of Vedana. So one way to settle this would be to use something quirky like feeling tone, which is awkward enough to stop us and say, whoa, what is this? Yeah. I have settled for hedonic tone, although this is technical and needs explanation. And it's important to be able to distinguish that from um, sensory sensation, and from a, the affective color that generally goes along with emotion. Yeah. 
Well, all emotions will have a feeling tone, will have a hedonic tone. The hedonic tone in itself can be discerned as different from the emotion and does not necessarily need to trigger the emotion. In all fairness, it has to be said that if I experience pleasant feeling tone, it is very likely that the next stage sets in. Buddhist psychology calls that anuroda, liking. For reasons I don't quite understand, this term has never quite made it into the hit lists of Theravada Buddhism, but it's there. It's proper canonical Pali. And it may be useful to distinguish the sequence of contact, this is the sensory impingement, then the evaluation of that contact as pleasant or unpleasant, and as um, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Then the next stage is, if I have not enough mindfulness, it runs into liking. From liking it goes into either desire or aversion. Now these stages in our everyday lives and with not great, uh, with with not lacking skill in actually being with this, it just feels like this is all baked together. It's all run into one. I don't really have a choice. It's nice and I am averse because I don't want to be nice right now. I don't want it to be nice. Or it's nice and I really love it and I want to have more of it. I'm attached to it already. And it seems the thing goes so fast. Yeah. So meditative training in Vedana means I learn to acknowledge that something in me goes, hmm, nice. Hmm, very nice. Yeah. Hmm, not nice. This is a very, very old principle. Think of a very simple creature. Very, very simple creature. Few amino acids strung together. Doesn't do any complicated things like sexuality or oxygen breathing or anything like that. Just a little thing strung together, few amino acids, flagellating its way towards nice things, nourishing things, and loves it, goes in for it, and goes towards it. Something not so nice, mildly toxic, and just goes, goes away. Goes away from it. Yeah. This principle, let's call this irritability, is at the root of Vedana. This may be a little unflattering to our complicated, highly educated minds, but basically the seeking of pleasure and the trying to avoid displeasure, trying to avoid unpleasant things, is nothing more than that very, very old principle of irritability. And once we begin to identify this feature in our experience, then we will begin to notice how important this is. The truth is, Vedana rules. Yeah. If you don't know why you're doing what you're doing, you can bet something in there is seeking pleasant feeling. Something in there is trying to avoid unpleasant feeling. So in many ways, the, even the theoretical understanding of identifying that segment in your experience is crucial in the whole economy of attention. And if we want to deepen this contemplative exercises uh, beyond mere attention, we need to study what hijacks our attention. We need to find out where attention gets waylaid. Yeah. Otherwise, you know, sometimes this renunciation and uh, worldly and uh, this kind of thing just sounds moralizing, particularly of Christian conditioning. You, s- 
you hear things like worldly or spiritual and suddenly you see a kind of Christian index finger go up and just sort of a moral sour posse voice kind of tries to say, you know, now these Buddhists are coming and taking all the fun out of your life. <laughs> this is not, you know, this is not the point. The point is, is very, very pragmatic. Vedana has nothing to do with ethics. Vedana has not even anything to do with volition. It triggers volition, obviously, but at the time you get Vedana, when you experience something as pleasant or unpleasant, this has nothing to do with your choice. It has only to do with how, how honest you're going to be with yourself, what you experience. Yeah. Vedana occurs in many places. It's part of the Nama factors, it's part of the Paticca Samuppada, it's part of the Khandas, it's part of the Satipatthanas. I can't do justice to all of this, but Mostly Vedana is Vipaka, meaning it comes to you on the basis of previous conditioning. Footnote here, not all Vedana is due to previous karma. Yeah? As we know from the Siva Kasutta, there are also other reasons like bile and phlegm and winds and assaults, careless behavior are mentioned, a few other things. So it's not deterministic. Sometimes this is a kind of new age determinism going on. People say, you know, you get an illness and say, you know, obviously you deserve that. You must have done something horrible in your past. That's why you got the diagnosis. This is just bad Buddhism. It's better not to engage this. Karma is not a teaching that is here to explain why things happen. It's a teaching that should help you make better choices right now. Not to explain why 37 people who have never met themselves before fell in the same bus into the same gorge somewhere. This is not the purpose of the teaching on Kama. So, so Vedana determines much of our attention. And if we are interested to harness our attention, to steady our attention, to deepen our attention into proper mindfulness and into proper stillness, we need to be interested what triggers our uh, Vedana responses. So, one simple way to do that in your meditation is just to acknowledge when you're distracted what has distracted you. Is this pleasant? Is this unpleasant? Is it mental? In other words, has it come out of your mind as an image, as a memory, as a fantasy? Or is it physical? Has it been triggered by a sound or a smell or a sight? And you're not analyzing this. The idea is not to analyze. The, anal the idea is to just make a little scratch statistic. Yeah? Pleasant, physical. Unpleasant, mental. By the end of two days, you will know that most of your distractions have something to do with mental and pleasant or unpleasant. Yeah? Your story to find out. Very simple exercise. When you find yourself distracted, when you find yourself pulled off, you just acknowledge, is this pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Is it mental? Is it physical? Go back to your meditation object. When you go through your day, just wonder, you know, when the meters go into the red, ooh, yeah. Acknowledge this is happening. Something is registering as highly pleasant in here. There's a third one, sometimes called neutral. I'm slightly uneasy with the neutral bit. The Pali means it's neither nor. And in my own uh, reading, 
I would more rate this third option not as the neutral gear, say, between forward and reverse, but actually as simply indifferent. It's not enough of either to be registering. Practically, even subtly pleasant things we'll mostly miss, unless you're a meditator and have trained acknowledging subtle pleasant stimulation and subtly unpleasant stimulation we, in everyday life, we also mostly miss. It takes sometimes quite a while to be registered that something unpleasant takes place. Meditators obviously try to refine their minds and become, uh, and that indifferent segment becomes narrower and narrower. So one of the things that helps in there are contemplations. The Vedana Samyutta refers to one of these contemplations. In fact, uh, again, I don't understand why this isn't in the Theravada charts more often. Um, a fourfold contemplation. And it suggests that we contemplate of pleasant things, their arising, their disappearance, their gratification, their danger. And only if we hold these four aspects up and clearly see that they are not substantial, that their gratification is inferior to the cost they bring, only then will we be prepared to let go. These are four key contemplations that are forming part of uh, a bigger field of uh, contemplative practice called Yoni Somanasikara, uh, wise reflection or wise investigation, uh, fathoming as I like to call it. Or um, How this works in practice. Let me end with an image of uh, one of my teachers in Thailand. Uh, he says, he outlines the workings of uh, sati, of yonisomanasikara and of wisdom. And he describes this as a, a person rowing in a boat out to go and harvest either lotuses or water plants. So the boat has to be anchored because there is a drift and if the person wants to cut these water plants uh, she has to firm that boat. So she throws an anchor out nearby the plants she wants to harvest and then she bends over takes the stems of these, say, let's say, lotuses and bends the lotus stems so to prepare them for the cut with the knife. So he identifies <coughs> the, the boat as the ba uh, basically as the mind, the chitta. This, the drift of the river is the kind of the associate drift which takes our mind into a a ceaseless associative stream. Sati acts as the anchor that holds the boat into place. Yonisomanasikara bends the stems yeah, and prepares them for the cut. And the wisdom faculty is likened to the knife that then cuts the actual stems. It's important to understand the role of mindfulness that um, and Yoni Somanasikara in the, the generation of wisdom. Mindfulness and Yoni Somanasikara bring about this wisdom. Yeah. You have the image, the boat, the anchor, the bending of the stems, the cutting. So you have sati, you have the mind, chitta, you have Yoni Somanasikara is the skillful move of bending the stems and preparing them for the cut, and you have panya for the cutting. Good. Thank you for your attention. Let me end.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.